Well, first about the cyber feminist pioneer, that is not quite true because cyber feminism was invented in the early 90s by the Australian artist group Vienna's Matrix yeah, and yeah. also Sadie Plant, the English cultural theoretician, she also used the term um, and, and wrote a book um, to kind of conceptualize it. Uh, that were both approaches that were for me, I mean, I liked it, but it was not really super thrilling. I thought something else needs to be added or it needs to be opened up. And that's why we found it in 1997, which was already basically five years after the term started to circulate. We started the Old Boys Network in Berlin with actually some of the members of Venus Matrix and some of the members of my earlier artist group, which was called Women in Technology. And the network was not an artist group or a collective, but it was, I mean, it, we, we, we founded the network and we had a core group. And the idea was of the core group that we organize international events and a platform or various platforms over the years where people could meet and exchange and discuss and the purpose of the whole thing was that we said we want to open up cyber feminism not only to be what um, Sadie Plant had suggested or what we in his metrics were practicing but we said okay imagine the term cyber feminism would be totally blank you know nothing on it and we give it to you and you think what you want it to be. And then we all meet and discuss what we bring together on the table. So that was the idea. To not be a fo become a follower of something or an adapt, but really to activate people to think about what they wanted it to be. And that was the main idea of the Old Boys Network. I started to study art before people had computers in the 80s. What I already had was a camera and I was very much into photography and I loved handling the camera. So that's also a technology. And um, then when I started to study in Hamburg, we, uh, at the art school, we, we got a first media lab with some Macs in them. And that must have been around 1990 or something. And the lab was immediately populated by young men who were sitting all day in front of the computers and we were like, hmm, that's interesting. What is it? How does it work? You know, what is going on? And when we approached them and said we would be interested in working, then they would say, oh, you know, it's not so easy. Not everyone can do it. Like, you know, women. And we felt a bit frustrated in the whole the whole climate around that was uh, more, you know, closed doors and it was not very inviting. It was immediately this atmosphere which I would meet so often in the years later and in the decades later. You mm -hmm. know, that the, the atmosphere around technology was making a mystery of technology was kind of closing doors was, you know, I'm not telling you how I do it, read the fucking manual. I had to learn it myself, so you learn it yourself. And and this whole attitude, you know. So that started at the art school and then 
I had several colleagues, friends, uh, fellow art students, and we started a group out of our frustration in practice. We started a group that we called Women and Technology, and it was more a reading group and a research group, so we started. You know, we wanted theoretically to understand what technology was. You know, well, we could not have access to the computers. So we started to read philosophy of technology and contemporary media theory. And that was all interesting, but not super satisfying when you're an artist, you want to do something. The group was st was still mixed, but then some people stayed away and it became more intense. And 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 we decided we turned the reading group into an into an artist group and we do things together. And then we founded the first thing we did, we founded the Institute for Women and Technology at our art school, which was just a virtual institute. It was just a name. And then we designed our. Uh, you know, our outfits, and we developed a brochure, and we got uh, merchandising articles printed with women and technology, and we made ourselves available for, you know, signing postcards and all that. So it was not so much content yet, we didn't do much. The, the main thing we did actually was kind of drawing attention to the fact that there was some misbalance, you know, some imbalance in in this relationship between gender and technology. And that cost a lot of attention and uh, and we got we got into invitations to do performances and so we all of a sudden, you know, just through using this name women in technology were you know, we became not famous, but on a, let's say, on a local level, you know, people invited us to do things. And then um, we we had a local TV station also. So we started to work on local TV shows and um, things evolved. And then there was an art television program at the Documenta in 1992. And we got invited to do art television and shall we do you know we don't have a we don't have a a body of work or we, we didn't even we didn't have a real concept or anything basically we did not know what we were doing <laughs> you know we were just trying and testing and then we were just thrown into this and we did we we came up with the with a series of interactive television shows that were called envy of penis games <laughs> we come across freud in our reading group and you know the the relation to technology oh. and lacan and of mm -hmm. course technologies and compensation for missing penis and so we <laughs> turned this around and made it into the title of our interactive interactive television shows so that's how it all started It was not really explicitly feminist in the beginning. It just happened to be that as as female students, we shared the same experiences that made us uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we started from there. And it was only after a while that we kind of realized that this has something to do with misogyny in general, and in particular with a very disturbed uh, relationship between 
you know, gender and technology. It's totally uneasy and it still is. I think what changed is that now everyone is handling technology on a daily basis, you know. We have, we have uh, mobile phones in the pocket where everyone, you know, almost has a tablet or an e-book reader and a computer. So not when, not uh, in terms of using technology, you know, becoming consumers of technology. I think everyone is a consumer of technology, more or less. I mean, small children, old people, you know, women, of course, too. Yeah. Um, the barrier is no longer in using technology, I would say. But the, the problem really still is the development or the design of technology. You know, you'll find very few uh, information scientists and computer engineers very few hardcore programmers, uh, today less women study uh, programming and information science than say 25 years ago. And I only met very recently um, a young woman who told me that she dropped out of, of her studies because she simply could not stand the climate oh. that was there in Germany. I'm also aware that it's very different in different countries you know, in the former former Eastern Bloc, it's very different. In 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 countries like India, Malaysia, is is a very different climate. Loads of women are doing that. It's mainly uh, it seems to be mainly a problem of of the Western world that that they, you know, or we or whoever. <laughs> I mean, there is a tradition that technology is equaled with with manliness in a way you mm -hmm. know if you know to handle technology that is cool that makes you very male and that obviously uh, causes problems for women who want to be good with technology mm -hmm. real techies because either they start to behaving like males in their social environments or they are not taken serious so this is this, this social component because technology doesn't, you know, come as a gadget, you know, which is totally neutral and innocent. It's always embedded in a large culture of how is it developed, who develops it, for what purpose, and how is it used, and, and, and you know, what is the whole uh, knowledge system around it. And this is what keeps women away. It's the climate. It's not the technology. And this is, as I said, in the in in the as in the in, on the side of the of the use. I think the barrier is not there anymore, and I think industries made sure that they that they are targeting women because you know women have jobs and money and they can buy things. So they would be very stupid, not to sell their gadget to us. But when it comes to, to the inside, nothing changed. And I really do not very clearly understand why this is the case, you know. I, I don't understand, except that there is this connotation of manliness and, you know, that is related to technology, but why? I mean, I don't know why it needs to be kept up in that way. After my PhD and my research on, on copyright and art, I realized that I wanted to move on from the question what artists can use 
to develop their work, which is often limited through copyright. You know, when they do remakes and, and, and sampling and, and collage practices, you easily get into this gray area where you don't know is this still legal or not. So that was my whole, you know, five, six years almost of PhD research. And then I realized I want to move on from the question what an artist can take to a broader question that that concerns the whole society. So I, I changed or I shifted the question from what artists can take to the question of what artists can contribute to a free culture, that's what I called it, and to the exchange of knowledge. And um, I started to, I started a search for art projects that are kind of active in this field and started to do interviews with these artists uh, to introduce their project and do research about their projects. And that was, uh, that was my first project in the field, which was called Giving What You Don't Have in the sense of artists were creating platforms to exchange knowledge or archives where they made things uh, accessible. They um, are developing tools or they create spaces or educational situations where knowledge is shared. So that was my approach and only after or during the work of this first smaller project I came across the term comments again and looked into it and I thought this is pretty much where I am and what I'm doing mm. so let's try and start using it I w it was still not you know it was an experiment and um, so I called my 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 work slowly started to call it a, to be about art and commons, and looking deeper into the commons and and into the commons research and literature, it's a historical concept. It's a concept that very often refers to land, to water, to natural natural resources of different uh, origin, but there's also um, a very important part of the commons are the digital commons, you know, free software and shared uh, information. And then I thought, okay, yeah, that's really an interesting concept because it, in historical aspect, it refers back to a society which is pre-capitalist, you know, where where not everything was about private ownership, where, where people shared things in a way, and, and that that is only really referring or mostly to to smaller communities. It was not necessarily uh, a concept for uh, to run a whole society, you know, or a whole country. So it's um, the idea of the commons is to have small entities of people who ideally know each other and you know deal with resources in a way that they you know they, they negotiate with each other and I thought that was a quite nice that this basically is a very nice idea and everyone who ever tried that knows how hard it is and impossible almost you know not to start fighting over things and all of that but that's is that is how it has to start you mm -hmm. know that's how how everyone I think has to learn where it makes sense to share and and how to do it in a good way. So it's good for everyone and not just for the one with the most, 
you know, power or physical strength or whatever. So that was the starting point. And so still I'm, I'm doing both. I'm looking into the commons to develop the commons uh, conceptually, because that is a term which popped up all of a sudden a few years or let's say 10 years ago mm -hmm. in the context also of digital commons, but also looking back to you know, looking into different countries all over the world and looking into their traditions of the commons. And it's still a very, um, we are kind of vague concept that different people use in different ways. Um, but I think it's, and also it's interesting because it, it transverses different disciplines. You know, it has to do with political science, how do you organize society, mm -hmm. what is politics, has to do with economics, um, with all kinds of, you know, with, with law, of course, with with many different disciplines. And my question is really also what I'm doing on the one hand, try to develop this conceptually further. And on the other hand, um, see how art and art projects can work in this field and do something, make interventions or make suggestions. Um, I sometimes use also the concept of speculation, you know, for the art projects that I'm investigating, saying they have a speculative aspect in the sense that they are trying and testing something that might be the future. It, of course, does not really totally work in the society we have at the moment because it's built on totally different paradigms. So it necessarily, it's not a solution at the moment, but it's partial small solutions that kind of speculating on the future. And that's what I'm exploring and I'm using, I think the art world is interesting or to, to kind of confront these two concepts, the commons and the art is interesting and challenging because they are so contradictory in the way how they work. I mean, nothing can be more hierarchical I think then the art world and mm -hmm. exclusive and the, the commons is the opposite. So the, that's, that was one reason, for example, why I put this three or I made this, I produced these three interviews for the exhibition with the three curators uh, because they are all three working in that field of bringing commons and art together. And I wanted them to really explain how they do it and what the, what the problems are, you know, the con conflicting points. And um, so, yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm looking into specific art projects that exist. This is part of my research. And the Commons Lab is, is an attempt to, to create a temporary situation to use the resources from the art world, like space and a little bit of money, um, to, to create a space in which things can happen, things can be produced together, uh, in that case, an exchange about knowledge. Um, so what I did here, I, I invited as many people as I could, you know, meet in a city. I've never been before. <laughs> I didn't know anyone. So, but I trusted that I would, you know, plant the seeds and, you know, spread the word. And then I had in the beginning, when I came here, this lecture at Concordia, which was well attended and some people approached me after that and came to the lab and so I slowly built a small network, network about exchange and the idea is then to capture these conversations. Um, I was running two workshops that will be also 
you know, I'll, I'll recorded them and I will not publish them, but I will kind of try to think what actually happened and, and extract some, you know, ideas for further work and make things available and the stuff is all what remains is the website. I was thinking of how I would structure the work and I I decided to do different things. I gave two lectures, which is a very one-sided, I say something, someone else has to listen. That was mainly to in first with the first lecture to introduce the background of the commons, like to lay out the theoretical background. And the second lecture was about my art practice and the history of that. Um, the second format was the three interviews I conducted, video interviews for the exhibition, talking with the curators, and they're working all the three of them in very different situations and scenarios. Mm -hmm. So that 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 is part of the lab to not only conduct the interviews, but then also to to evaluate it, to assess it, you know, to analyze and write about it. The third format were work workshops. So I designed two workshops, which I would, of course, somehow lead and conduct, but based on two different concepts of knowledge, like a more codified knowledge as you have, you know, in books, transferable knowledge. People write down something they know in a book, then the book travels without them and the knowledge is independent from the person, mm -hmm. as opposed to the form of knowledge which is more embedded or which is embedded in a person, which is tacit, which doesn't exist without the person. So that was the two basic concepts of knowledge, and I was just trying to experiment a little bit. I mean, this was all just starting points. Um, and also um, then to record the sessions and to evaluate that as part of it, that will, you know, that will be a sort of knowledge production. And then I had, uh, I don't know, I think about 10, 11, 12 interviews, something like that. And it was very f free. I didn't, I mean, I had a list in the beginning. Irandi made a list for me of people I could meet. And it's weird to have a list of names that you do not associate anything mm -hmm. with, really. And um, I contacted some and, uh, you know, some responded, others didn't. And I just, it just didn't happen. I thought this, for some reason, is not the way it should work. I don't want to plan it ahead and arrive and have a schedule full of appointments with people I don't know. So I wanted really to, yeah, the process to take place, you know, and see, I'm here, I spread the word, I talk to people, and something will happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I will just meet who I meet. Basically, I only knew one person um, from FemHack, Sophie, which I met in a hackers camp in Berlin oh, wow. a while ago. And she helped me. I mean, she was the first person I interviewed, of course. You know, I knew her. She pointed me to some interesting things in the city. So that, you know, that's how it happened. And after the talk at Concordia, people approached me. So I, you know, I invited them. And the last person I talked to yesterday was... Gabriella Coleman from McGill, she came to visit. And my very, very, very last interview this afternoon will be with Erandi, wow. the curator of the show. Oh, and we will exciting. sit down and, um, yeah, have a look what happened in the last two, two weeks and discuss it. So that's the kind of knowledge, you know. It's a, 
it's a it's based on it's 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 based a lot on on interaction and then afterwards reflecting on yeah. what happened and it's it's not a totally it's not ready at all i have the feeling it was a great first edition of the commons lab and it will definitely there will definitely be others mm-hmm. that will build on this one but probably will be different in certain aspects I think many people perceive me as a very intellectual person that is very organized and very, you know, conceptually thinking, uh, which I partly am, I guess. But all the important things that I did in my life, I realized I did totally intuitively without knowing what I was doing and only afterwards when I was sitting down and reflecting, you know, I I understood what I was doing. So that was pretty interesting finding. And basically that was also the same with my PhD, you know. I mean, it's, it was PhD research, but it, it was practice-based research. Um, the whole topic of, of art and copyright, I started because I had personally copyright problems with my work and the show was cancelled and so I thought what is this copyright thing and why does it limit my practice and what does it have to do with art practice in general and it was always that I first did the work and the research was kind of then reflecting about the theory. I have the feeling I'm still in the process of this because it's somehow it's somehow not not highly respected or not valued. I mean, everyone speaks about the process, and the process is also a big, uh, you know, big keyword in my exhibition. I have this eleven keywords. Process mm-hmm. is one of them, and what that means, it's something really radical, I think, and it's something frightening. It's full of risk because you. You know, to to create this exhibition in the way I did, I think I could not have done it 10 years ago. I would have been dead scared that mm-hmm. nothing happens or things go wrong or, you know, I thought, well, it will happen what will happen and whatever will happen is okay. The important thing is that you know that you set up an open system, try to keep it as open as possible, and then you know, just trusting and see what happens. And then the the difficult task is, or, you know, the second big challenge is to sit down afterwards and try to think about what actually happened. Mm. If that doesn't happen, the other things are not so valuable, I think. You know, they are still valuable, but I think sitting down afterwards and trying to understand what happens in a process that is kind of free and not directed, um, I think that's uh, that's the, that's a big task, and then transfer this kind of knowledge. I, I don't like to to be overly negative. Also, the situation is kind of worrying and negative at the moment. I think we always have to end the sentence or the thought or the text or the radio interview, <laughs> whatever we do, with with something positive that gives us power and agency because otherwise we're kind of just killing ourselves with our negative analysis. I think it's very important to look carefully what is actually there and then understanding where our own agency lies. And I think 
I think there is no big theories at the moment that people could hang on to and say, yeah, if we only do this, then we'll be fine. That was a little bit the early cyberfeminism that mm -hmm. was kind of suggesting, oh yeah, because it's digital, because it's horizontal, because the hierarchies are flat, you know, it, the world will automatically become a different world. Unfortunately, it didn't. So this is not a strategy. <laughs> I think we have to do more. And I think the commons is quite interesting because it allows the connection of the very personal, you know, the very individual, the very private, to connect it to the very big. Like, how is the world run? How, what is capitalism doing? You know, and what does this have to do with me? You know, because it showed already, if you start talking about your gadgets, you know, now we have here on the table a mobile phone, a super high-end recording device, and, you know, an iPad, and, iPad, iPad yeah. and another mobile phone, yeah. and here's another mobile phone, and, and another yeah. computer, I mean, this and a camera, <laughs> I mean, you know, just the three of us, what we have flying here, if you, if we would just, you know, freeze now and say, okay, we look into this, and what are the sketches? Where do they come from? What is the material involved? Who owns the corporations? You know, what are the labor uh, conditions of the people who mm -hmm. produ produced it? Um, so that's only hardware. Then the, what is the software? What are the products we are using, you know? The, what are the terms of conditions, the legal restrictions involved, um, uh, what is all the stuff we have on our computers and on our laptops, you know, what we stole, what we bought, what we found, you know, all that, you know, every single item you can analyze and, and kind of locate in the big system, uh, which I think the commons provides a very interesting structure for for because the commons is always about a resource and a group of people who is kind of dealing with this resource and the processes of negotiation. So you can, you know, if you if you look at these gadgets in terms of resources, of of the of the involvement of who is dealing with these resources, it's the opposite of commons, mm -hmm. you know, totally exclusive. The way the minerals and the, our mind um, how the, the labor force is exploited, all that. And what do we have to do with the world? Where are we in this scenario? We cannot change the system from A to B overnight. And I think also no one would know what the new system should be like, but I think we can start with, with demands as customers. You say we, want, we, we don't want this anymore, we want that. Uh, we want certain privacy, we want labor conditions to be this and that. Also, I think another point really is when it comes to this imbalance of gender technology in terms of production and access, then we first of all have to raise awareness mm. in, this, in this environment, which is very hard work which some people do with code of conducts and creating mm -hmm. safe spaces. I, I, that yeah. is a very hard process to do in such a hostile environment. And the second step, they have to acknowledge that this is happening, you know, not denying. 
and then I think slowly things can change. But for me, it's not really about having more women anywhere, you know, in power or something. I'm not, you know, the world won't change if there is a theme. Mm. That's not the point. The systems themselves have to change. And I think, yeah, we, the only thing we can do is, is just what we're doing. Maybe a bit more focus. What I would like to do is have a regular group that meets regularly to, to really work on strategies mm. and actions and demands. There are so little political demands around in this field. There are so little demands or protest against the corporations and their politics. And I think we have, that's uh, the, where, we, where we have power. And a good thing is, I think, to sit down and think about where our privileges are, not only complaining what we you know, don't have, but what we do have. We have access to so many things, knowledge and, you know, internet, uh, education, uh, all of that. And and think about how we can use it better.